Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. I hope that you've been enjoying the weekend and the wonderful fall weather here in Chicago. It's been between the high 50s to I think like high 60s, I would say mostly, which for me is ideal. I've been spending a lot of time outside with my French bulldog, Boo Radley, who's almost 10 months old now, but this is my favorite time of year and it's a great opportunity to be outside because Otherwise, I'm inside working or studying up on horrible true crime cases. But you know what? That's my truth, and I'm sticking to it. The case that we're covering today is actually something that happened locally to me and very close to where I grew up, and that is the Winnetka School shootings by Lori Dan. In terms of sources that I used, I used a few, but I wanted to shout out an article from the Chicago Tribune that was published in June 1988, which was, I believe, a month after the case, or the incident rather, and it's called The Many Faces of Lori Dan. So that gives a lot of interesting insight into the perpetrator. There's a lot of dichotomies in it, I would say, and we'll cover that shortly, but in addition to, of course, the actual events of what happened, it just gives a lot more color, not necessarily reasoning, but a lot more color into who she was. And I find her very fascinating. I mean, what she did was horrific, but you'll find that there are things about her that I think were out of touch with reality. So let's dive right in. Lori Wasserman was born on October 18th, 1957, at Michael Reese Hospital on Chicago's South Side to Norman Wasserman, a successful accountant, and his wife Edith Joy. At that time, they were living in the Pill Hill neighborhood on the South Shore with their five-year-old son, Mark. In 1964, the Wasserman family moved to a three-story brick home in Highland Park, an affluent suburb on the North Shore of Chicago. Lori attended Westridge Elementary School and Red Oak Junior High. She was quiet and unremarkable, except for her spelling ability. Nobody recalls that she had any close friends. A classmate from those times said she was, quote, very, very quiet. And she was very strange because you'd walk down the hall and say hi, and she wouldn't say anything. Wasserman attended Highland Park High School for her freshman and sophomore years, then transferred to Nutria East High School in Winneka in 1973, after her family moved to a $100,000 sprawling five-bedroom house in Glencoe. Though comfortable by any measure, the home is modest by Sheridan Road and Glencoe standards. Now I want to mention quickly that I actually went to Nutria High School, and when I went, it wasn't separated into east and west. There was just the freshman campus, which was west in Northfield, and then um, the sophomore to senior year campus, which was what was then known as Nutria East. Nutria was really not an easy place to go to high school. The movie Mean Girls starring Lindsay Lohan and others that became very popular was actually written based on Nutria. And I think in the film they talk about Evanston High School, so it might have been partly that as well. But 
if that just gives you a little indication of what the culture is like, it's highly competitive. Um, there are incredible teachers and programs, I mean, truly top notch and almost surprisingly so for a public school. But when I say that there was wealth and affluence there, I mean, this is some of the richest people in the state of Illinois. So very competitive, um, socially speaking. I mean, navigating that was complicated, you know, not always easy. And I I had friends, of course, in different groups, but there definitely was always a sense of keeping up with the Joneses and wanting to have, you know, the right genes and just dumb stuff like that. But again, I don't regret it because it made me who I am today, but I'm not going to sit here and pretend like it was a cakewalk. So just bear that in mind. Um, But obviously, Lori and her family were very well off, which in some cases was beneficial there, but in her case, it didn't really make much of a difference. At Nutrier, she didn't have very many girlfriends, but she was popular with boys, and she did attend junior prom at the Hotel Orrington in Evanston. She tried out for cheerleading in the girls' club, but did not make the cut, which made her very angry. A female classmate recalls, quote, I perceived a paranoia when girls were around. She always had a boyfriend and was really clingy and draped around him. When Lori worked as a cashier at a local Kmart, she would give her prom date discounts or not charge him at all. Norman Wasserman showered his daughter with gifts throughout her life, but when it came to outward displays of affection, the family seemed uncomfortable. At her engagement dinner years later, Lori was unable to tell her parents she loved them, even though she had written the words in her speech. In 1975, Lori graduated from Nutra High School with mediocre grades. She was accepted to Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, and entered college in the fall of 1976, declaring herself an education major. She had always enjoyed kids and had been a babysitter throughout high school. Her dream was to eventually become a teacher. A year later, after her grades had improved a bit, she was able to transfer to the University of Arizona in Tucson, where she pledged the Alpha Delta Pi sorority. A former sorority sister maintains that Lori was not particularly social or popular within the group and that she complained a lot. Her only apparent interest was men and dating. She would make multiple dates in one evening and cancel all but one with a man she wanted to go out with. She was a very average student there. In the summer of 1977, Lori took a home economics course at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and when she returned to Tucson in the fall of that year, she changed her major to home economics. She also found time, she would later confide, to learn marksmanship off campus. At the University of Arizona, she began dating a pre-med student. The relationship quickly became serious and Lori became possessive and demanding. By 1980, the relationship was failing and Lori returned to her parents' home in Glencoe, and there she transferred to Northwestern University in Evanston to complete her degree. She had enrolled in six classes in their continuing education program, but dropped out of all of them. On job applications, she lied and said she had graduated from the University of Arizona. At one point, she even worked for Northwestern as a receptionist, but quit in August of 1982, complaining the role wasn't challenging enough. I have to say, as somebody that is, in my full-time career, a recruiter, that kind of stuff just drives me nuts. 
you know, somebody that is a regular quitter that doesn't really complete anything and then claims, oh, well, you know, the work wasn't stimulating. You know what? You got to start somewhere. And so this kind of attitude, that poor little rich girl attitude that I know exists in in the town where I grew up and the surrounding areas that fed into, you know, Nutra High School, that just makes me so angry. Around this time in 1982, Lori would meet Russell Dan at a bar. Russell, who grew up in Highland Park, was a rising employee of Dan Brothers Insurance Company in Northbrook, the family business. His uncle, Charles Dan, said in 1988, quote, You could characterize Russell as an all-American boy, very outgoing, a great number of friends, well-liked. He was also a champion tennis player at the Green Acres Country Club in Northbrook. When Russell met Lori, he thought she was quiet but cute. The two started dating. Nine months later, the pair became engaged at the Wasserman's Florida home in Boca Raton. On September 11, 1982, Russell, then 26, and Lori, then 24, were married at a small ceremony in Northbrook. Kind of weird, September 11th. Kind of foreboding if you think about it. They kept it small because Russell had many friends. Lori had barely any at all. They didn't want it to seem noticeable. The Wassermans gifted the newlyweds with $15,000, Which, think about that, in 1982, are you kidding me? I would love that now. That would be a lot now. So, really, really wealthy family. Even with this generous gift, Russell was earning a six-figure salary that was only a fraction of his net worth, so Lori did not need to work, which, you know, she's probably thrilled about that, based on her work ethic. As newlyweds, Russell Dan began to notice what, at first, he thought to be harmless superstitions. At stoplights, Lori would open the door and tap her foot on the pavement. She would tiptoe around a carpet at her parents' Boca Raton home, and she would refuse to close cabinets in the kitchen. He soon realized that these problems might be deeper. Lori's father, who also was part owner of a clothing store, provided her with new clothes, but they always ended up in messy piles on the closet floor. Her car, family members thought, looked like the home of a bag lady. Russell's family noted signs of obsessive-compulsive disorder and strange behavior, including leaving trash around the house. Lori also felt in competition with Russell's mother. Her husband promised to spend whatever it took to make her well. So Lori began to see a psychiatrist who identified her child and her upbringing as the cause of her problems. But by March 1984, she was refusing help. A letter from her psychiatrist on March 12th pleaded with her to continue psychotherapy. The letter also warned Lori that she could not rely on medication to cure her problems. It said, quote, The use of medication can only result in a symptomatic improvement and not in a definitive cure for the kinds of difficulties that you are experiencing. Medication can also only be appropriately administered under ongoing doctor's observation and care. In 1985, they bought a five-bedroom house in Highland Park, but by October of that year, they separated. The marriage was the only thing she had and the only thing she wanted, a friend of the couple said. According to the friend, Lori told Russell, quote, if I can't have you, nobody can. Russell Dan's father, Armand, gave Norman Wasserman a deadline to come to a friendly divorce agreement. The day before the deadline in January 1986, Lori Dan filed for a dissolution of the marriage. She told her lawyer that she was hoping to drag out the divorce proceedings for two to three years. Unsurprisingly, the divorce negotiations were acrimonious, with Lori claiming that Russell was abusive. 
In the following months, the police were called to investigate various incidents, including several harassing phone calls made to Russell and his family. In April 1986, Lori Dan accused Russell of breaking into and vandalizing her parents' house, where she was then living. Shortly after, she walked into the Marksman gun shop in Glenview, where the clerk remembers her as being flirtatious. She bought a Smith & Wesson Magnum. The police were concerned about her gun ownership and unsuccessfully tried to persuade her and her family that she should give up the gun, which, hello. But she told her parents that she needed it for protection. A friend of the Dan family made sure Russell knew his estranged wife was now armed, and Russell had told the police. When Mr. and Mrs. Wasserman were contacted by the police again, they said they would put the gun in a safe deposit box. In August, Lori met John Childs on the Glencoe Beach, and they had a short relationship. He decided to stop seeing her after a few months when he noticed her alarming behavior, like opening doors randomly and picking up silverware with her sleeves. That same month, she contacted her ex-boyfriend from the University of Arizona, who by then was a resident at a hospital, and she claimed to have had his child. When he refused to believe her, she called the hospital where he worked and claimed he had raped her in the emergency room. In September 1986, Russell Dan reported he had been stabbed in his sleep with an ice pick. He accused Lori of the crime, although he had not actually seen his attacker. A hardware store employee said he remembered Lori Dan buying an ice pick. A receipt for the ice pick was found in Lori's home. Russell Dan failed a lie detector test. His ex-wife, he said, passed one. Quote, she actually told me she did it, said Russell Dan on ABC TV's Nightline after the incident. Another reason that police failed to file charges on her was because Russell had an abrasive attitude towards police. Also, based on a medical report, It was suggested that the injury might have been self-inflicted by Russell. During this time, Russell and his family continued to receive harassing hang-up phone calls, and Lori was arrested for calls made to Russell's sister. A Deerfield woman dating Russell Dan reported similar calls to local police in October and said she suspected Lori Dan. The calls were traced to the Wasserman address in Glencoe. The police report said, quote, Victim believes suspect is 1096, which is a police code for mental patient. She was arrested by Highland Park Police in November 1986 for these calls. The charges later were dropped by the Lake County prosecutors, who cited a lack of concrete evidence. I'm not really sure what other evidence they need, but so it goes. As of January 28, 1987, the divorce seemed to be proceeding smoothly for once. Court documents show the couple intended to split the money from selling the house, valued at about $250,000, and Russell Dan would pay Lori $1,250 a month for 36 months. At about the same time, their harassing phone calls seemed to diminish, but by March, Russell Dan's friends were again experiencing the same terror as one of them put it, and wrote the Lake County State's attorney seeking help. Quote, this was happening two or three times a night, five days in a row, said one of his friends. Just before the divorce was finalized in April 1987, Lori accused Russell of raping her. There were no physical signs supporting Lori's claim, although she passed two polygraph tests. In May of 1987, Lori accused Russell of placing an incendiary device in her home, and I believe that was a Molotov cocktail. No charges were filed against Russell for either alleged event. Lori's parents believed her claims and supported and defended her throughout, which is insane to me. By this time, she was being treated by another psychiatrist for obsessive-compulsive disorder and a, quote, chemical imbalance. 
Psychiatrists told police, however, that he did not think Lori was suicidal or homicidal. A caller to the home of Susan Taylor, Russell Dan's sister, threatened, quote, Susie, 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 you are going to die. Goodbye. The caller would also say, I'm a psychopath, and she would laugh. It was around this time that Lori Dan, who also wanted to have one child, decided to take up babysitting. She posted handwritten notices on bulletin boards in the Glencoe Public Library and DJ's Foods. She received a truly mixed bag when it came to reviews. Some praised her care for their children, saying she readily played games and put together puzzles with them. Others complained to police about damage she caused to their furniture and the theft of food and clothes. One mother recalls she had body odor like a longshoreman and that she would use pots and silverware and then put them back in cabinets and drawers without washing them, which is so disgusting. Despite the complaints, no charges were ever pressed, once again. Lori's father did pay $400 in damages to one of the families, though. In the summer of 1987, Lori sublet an apartment from a student at the Kellogg Living Learning Center at Northwestern University in Evanston. Once again, her strange behavior was noted, including riding up and down the elevators for hours, wearing rubber gloves to touch metal, and leaving meat to rot in sofa cushions. She took no classes at the university. A student working at the center later told university public safety officials that Lori was curious about which fraternities would be preferable for meeting men. And you have to wonder, is she going to go to the frat house and put roast beef in their couch? Like, that's not the way, Lori. She soon became a suspect in thefts in the building and for several disruptive incidents. Her existence in Evanston was largely nocturnal, said an investigator Russell Dan had hired after he grew afraid of her. He said that when school officials inspected her apartment, they found urine-stained floors and rancid meat on the counter. Lori was discovered five blocks away, sleeping in her car at one point, which the investigator found was not unusual for her. Northwestern, of course, was planning to evict her, but her father arrived to conciliate, which it seems like he always does, and she moved out on September 7, 1987. With her condition deteriorating, Lori and her family sought specialized help. In November 1987, she moved to Madison, Wisconsin, to live in a student residence while being observed by a psychiatrist who specialized in obsessive-compulsive disorder. She had already begun taking an experimental drug called clomipramine, and her new psychiatrist increased the dosage, adding lithium carbonate to reduce her mood swings and initiating behavioral therapy to work on her phobias and ritualistic behaviors. Unfortunately, at the end of December 1987, Lori purchased a 22 semi-automatic Beretta. It was in January the following year that Lori moved to the Towers, off-campus student housing in Madison. Despite the intervention, her strange behavior continued, including riding elevators for long periods, changing television channels repetitively, and an obsession with good and bad numbers. There were also concerns about whether she was bulimic. A fifth floor student said she was a fifth floor student said she saw a note at the front desk of the dining room saying, "Please don't let Lori Dan leave and come back for meals." And I do believe she's got the kind of chipmunk cheeks that are very common in uh, sufferers of bulimia. It causes your parotid glands on the side of your cheeks to swell when you binge and purge. So that's just speculation, but I think based on the behaviors and the ritualistic aspect of bulimia, I could see that being the case. Plus the cheeks, if you see in her mugshots, they're very swollen. She began harassing families in the North Shore again, to the extent where they banded together to form a task force to investigate her. One family that had accused her of stealing food received a death threat against their children. 
A Glencoe detective, Floyd Moore, was assigned to the case, and he learned that Lori Dan was seeing a psychiatrist. The detective later told some of the people receiving phone calls that the psychiatrist again believed she would not harm herself or anyone else. On March 12th, Lori was reportedly seen in a lab at the University of Wisconsin Hospital and Clinics building. Three days later, a diluted quantity of arsenic and lead was reported stolen. She had also stolen books from the library about poison. Both her psychiatrist and her father tried to persuade her to enter the hospital as an inpatient, but she refused. On March 14th, Lori was arrested and charged with shoplifting four wigs and two hair clips at a J.C. Penney store in Madison. She said she was a University of Arizona student and gave her address as the Highland Park home she had once shared with her husband and listed her weight at 130 pounds, which was 33 pounds heavier than what was on her driver's license. In May 1988, a letter, later confirmed to have been sent by Lori Dan, was sent to the hospital administration where her ex-boyfriend worked in Tucson, again accusing him of sexual assault. Since the phone calls were across state lines, the FBI became involved, and a federal indictment against her was prepared. However, the ex-boyfriend, fearful of publicity and concerned about her getting bail and then attempting to fulfill her threats against him, decided to wait until other charges were filed in Illinois. A call on May 9th to the Tucson ex-boyfriend threatened that him and his children would be stabbed. According to a prosecutor, he quoted the doctor as saying, It sounded like the voice of the Wicked Witch of the West. On May 15th, with most students already gone for the summer, a staff member at the Towers found her in a fifth-floor garbage room. She was lying in a corner of the room, curled up in the fetal position with a plastic bag pulled over her body, dripping with sweat. Police believe she left Madison at 4 a.m. on May 16th, headed back to Glencoe. Arizona prosecutors had planned to indict Dan on May 18th for the stabbing threat. During the days before May 20th, 1988, Lori Dan prepared rice cereal, snacks, and juice boxes poisoned with the diluted arsenic she had stolen in Madison. She mailed them to a former acquaintance, ex-babysitting clients, her psychiatrist, Russell Dan, and others. On May 20th, early in the morning, Lori set out from her Glencoe home in a luxury Toyota with the three guns from the marksman and the packages of food tainted with lead and arsenic. She personally delivered snacks and juice samples to acquaintances and families for whom she babysat. Other snacks were delivered to Alpha Tau Omega, Psi Upsilon, and Kappa Sigma Fraternity Houses in Leverone Hall at Northwestern University in Evanston. Notes were attached to some of the deliveries. The drinks were often leaking and the squares unpleasant tasting, so few were actually consumed. And since the arsenic was highly diluted, nobody became seriously ill, thankfully. At about 9 a.m., she arrived at the home of the Rush family, former babysitting clients in Winneka, to pick up their two youngest children. The family had just told Lori they were moving away. Instead of taking the children on the promised outing, she took them to Ravinia Elementary School in Highland Park, Illinois, where she erroneously believed that both of her former sister-in-law's two sons were enrolled. In fact, one of Dan's intended targets was not even a student at the school. She left the two children in the car while she entered the school and tried to detonate a firebomb in one of the school's hallways. After her departure, the small fire she set was subsequently discovered by students and quickly extinguished by a teacher. She drove to a local daycare attended by her ex-sister-in-law's daughter and tried to enter the building with a plastic can of gasoline but was stopped by staff. 
Now, I don't know what happened here. Did anyone call the police? Like, I couldn't find any information. This horrible day could have stopped right here if somebody had actually called police once they stopped her with that can of gasoline, because what did they think she was doing? Next, she drove the children back to their home and offered them some arsenic-poisoned milk, but the boys spat it out because it tasted strange. Once at their home, she lured them downstairs and used gasoline to set fire to the house, trapping their mother and the two children in the basement. Luckily, they managed to escape. She drove three and a half blocks to the Hubbard Woods Elementary School with three handguns in her possession. She arrived at around 10.30 a.m. and armed with the three guns that were tucked into her shorts. That day, there were around 200 kids attending school. She wandered into a second grade classroom for a short while, then left. Finding a boy in the corridor, she pushed him into the boy's washroom and shot him with a 22 semi-automatic Beretta pistol. Her Smith & Wesson revolver jammed when she tried to fire it at two other boys, and she threw it into the trash along with the spare ammunition. The boys ran out of the washroom and raised the alarm. She then entered classroom number 7, where teacher Amy Moses was giving children a bicycle safety test. Amy was a small woman, barely 5 foot, and weighing about 110 pounds. At this point, Lori was heavier, and there was no way Amy was able to fight Lori off. When Amy asked if she could assist Lori in anything, she merely replied with a chilling no. Amy said that Lori looked, quote, so lifeless, her face was so hard. Amy assumed that Lori was a visiting student teacher, so she tried to engage her in further conversation. Lori stayed cold and blank, probably strategizing her next move, wondering what to do. She ordered all the children into the corner of the room, saying, Kids, I'm going to teach you something about guns. Line up against the wall. At this point, Moses refused and attempted to disarm Lori, managing to unload the Beretta in the struggle. Lori drew the 32 Smith & Wesson from the waistband of her shorts and aimed it at several groups of students. She shot five children. Four children were immediately taken by ambulance to Evanston Hospital, and two children and one adult were treated at Highland Park Hospital. On that day, Evanston Hospital spokeswoman Mary Harris said, We have two girls and two boys. They're all critical, between the ages of seven and nine. Three are in the operating room, and one is in the emergency room. Eight-year-old Nick Corwin died at Highland Park Hospital. Winnetka Police Chief Herbert Tim said, The woman just walked into the classroom, went past the teacher who was there, indicated the gun was real, and began firing at random. Parents rushed to the school and gathered outside, many of them weeping as they waited for word for their children. Lori was prevented from leaving the area by car because the roads were closed for a funeral cortege. She decided to drive her car backwards down the nearby street, but the road dead-ended into a private drive. Abandoning her car, she removed her bloodstained shorts and tied a blue garbage bag around her waist. With her two remaining guns, she made her way through the woods and came upon the house of the Andrews family. Lori entered the house and met a mother and her 20-year-old son, named Philip, who were in the kitchen. She claimed she was raped and had shot the rapist in the struggle. The Andrews were sympathetic and tried to convince her that she need not fear the police because she had acted in self-defense. The mother, Ruth Ann, offered Lori a pair of yellow sweatpants, which she finally accepted. As she put them on, Phil was surprised that Lori exposed herself in full view of everyone, not even bothering to cover her nakedness. While she was putting them on, Phil had the wherewithal to pick up and pocket the Beretta. He suggested that she call her family. Lori agreed and called her mother, telling her she had done something terrible and the police were involved. Philip took the phone and explained Lori's story about the rape and the shooting, suggesting that Mrs. Wasserman come to get her. When he got Edith on the phone, Phil was shocked at how emotionless and unsurprised she was, asking him only to return her daughter home safely. Edith claimed that she could not come pick Lori up as she didn't have a car. 
Mr. Andrew arrived home, and they continued to argue with Lori, insisting she give up the second gun. Lori called her mother again, and this time Mr. Andrew spoke with Edith, asking her to persuade Lori to give up the gun. Lori told her mother, Mom, I've done something terrible. People won't understand. I'm going to have to kill myself. These are nice people here, and I don't want to hurt them. While Lori spoke with her mother, she allowed Ruth Ann to leave. Her husband also left. Lori ordered Phil to stay. Just before noon, seeing police advance on the house, she shot Philip in the chest without warning. He sunk behind the pantry for cover, then managed to escape out of the back door before collapsing and being rescued by the police and ambulance personnel. The bullet was lodged inside Phil's lungs, right beside his heart, but he escaped the house and survived the herring ordeal, eventually going on to become an FBI agent. With the house surrounded, Lori holed herself up in the daughter's room. The room was filled with toys and girly objects, which provided perhaps some comfort to her. The Wassermans were brought to the house. The crime scene outside would rage on until 7 p.m. Ex-husband Russell also showed on the scene after going through a root canal at his dentist that morning. God, what a day that must have been for him. He claimed to have felt vindicated, as no one had believed him when he warned them that Lori was violent and unstable. An officer on the scene who had mishandled the stabbing case even sobbed and apologized to Russell. When Norman arrived at the standoff, he was hysterical and in disbelief. He cried, she's my little girl, and they're treating her like a wild animal. Look at these people with army outfits and guns. All they want to do is kill her. If this is true, if this is Lori and she did these things, my life is over. Norman demanded that police allow him to go inside the house to get Lori, but they refused, saying it was too dangerous. Cops humiliatingly tied a dog leash around Norman's waist to keep him under control. Through speakerphone, he tried to beg his daughter to come out of the house and talk to him, but there was no response. After nearly seven hours of this awful spectacle, police finally stormed the house. They found her body in the bedroom. She had shot herself in the mouth. She was face down in a pool of blood. She had shot herself in the mouth and severed her brainstem. Her eyes were open and her tongue stuck out between clenched teeth. At the age of 30, Lori Wasserman Dan was dead. Norm was devastated, sobbing and apologizing for his daughter's actions continuously. Edith seemed eerily relieved. The agonized couple went home, police in tow. When police tried to search Lori's room, Norman grew enraged, demanding they leave immediately. Once the police left, the Wassermans threw away most of the evidence. Norman's compulsion to protect his daughter followed him even after her death. He cried and cried, mourning the loss of his baby, wondering how she could do something so evil. At her death, Lori Wasserman Dan weighed 137 pounds. She wore a University of Arizona Medical School t-shirt and printed with a skeleton posed as the thinker. For the most part, Lori's rampage had failed. She had attempted to kill hundreds of people across the city by distributing poisoned food to, quote, enemies, planting homemade bombs at schools, committing arson, and shooting up an elementary school. She had also intended to kill her ex-husband and those close to him. In the end, Lori killed only one child and herself. All but one of the victims wounded by Lori recovered from their injuries. The victims and parents received extensive support to help them cope with the psychological after-effects of the attacks. One parent, Karen Ward, whose children attended another Winnetka school at that time, said, My kids are preoccupied with this and the fact that it was a babysitter. They very much want to talk about it and the person who did it and why. According to a 2018 op-ed in Chicago Magazine by former Today Show correspondent Mike Leonard, who is also a native of Winneka, quote, 
The days and months that followed were agonizing for those closest to the incident and a stupefying blur for the rest of us. Our once buoyant little hamlet felt broken. Residents were dazed, withdrawn. Our young kids, part of the maybe the last untethered generation, retreated to the safety of home. Our schools put locks on the doors as we began eyeing a new reality. The following summer was subdued and strange. Winneka endured an alien invasion of fear, and with fear comes mistrust. When we lose trust, community breaks down, and that wound isn't quick to heal. Parents and members of the community subsequently devoted many years to gun control policy. Philip Andrew gave interviews about gun control from his hospital bed, and he later became active in local and state gun control organizations as the executive director of the Illinois Council Against Handgun Violence. He also became a lawyer and, as I mentioned earlier, an FBI agent. The Dan shootings also fueled the debate about criteria for committing mentally ill people to mental health facilities against their will. Some favored the involuntary commitment of a person who is determined to be mentally ill and incapable of making informed decisions about treatment. But civil libertarians like Benjamin Wolfe, who is staff counsel for the ACLU of Illinois, opposed the idea, saying, quote, it would be a shame if we cut back on the civil liberties of literally millions of mentally ill people because of the occasional bizarre incident. I kind of understand what he's saying, but at the same time, it's not occasional anymore. This is happening all the time. Lori's family, distraught over the tragedy and unwilling to talk to reporters, has not been able to shade in the portrait of their only daughter. Russell made only one short appearance on national television and then disappeared from the public eye. I think, if I recall reading somewhere, his appearance on Nightline, he he wasn't very forthcoming on a lot of things, and I think that made people suspicious, and they did not react well to him, so I think he decided to get out of Dodge, if you will. Her psychiatrist in Madison has cooperated with police. He has told police she never related to him thoughts of violence. Some blamed Lori's family for defending and protecting her in, in spite of the signs of her deteriorating mental health. Investigations were hampered by the Wasserman's refusal to be interviewed by police or to provide access to psychiatric records. The records were eventually obtained by court order. On the night of her death, the Wasserman's allowed only a very brief search of her bedroom, after which they cleaned it and, as I said, removed potential evidence. The police were criticized for not sealing off her room as part of the crime scene. Parents of the shooting victims subsequently sued the Wasserman family for damages, which I do not blame them. Further criticism was directed at Dan's psychiatrist for failing to identify or take action regarding her mental instability. At the time of her suicide, she was taking an unlicensed drug, clomipramine. The effects of this drug were initially considered as contributing factors to her mental well-being, but ultimately were ruled out. Two newspaper clippings were found among Lori's possessions after her death. One described a man who randomly killed two people in a public building. The other described a depressed young man who had attempted to kill himself in the same way that Dan did. He survived and discovered that his brain injury had cured him of his obsessive-compulsive disorder. One theory of Dan's rationale was that she targeted people who had disappointed her in some way. Her ex-husband, her former sister-in-law, her ex-boyfriend, his wife, the family moving away, as well as former friends and babysitting clients. Interestingly, she was also briefly investigated as a possible suspect in the Chicago Tylenol murders, but no direct connection was ever found. A book called Murder of Innocence was written by Eric Zorn about the tragedy and made into a television film starring Valerie Bertinelli. Apparently, Russell Dan actually coached Bertinelli while she was preparing for the role. 
There's also a heavy metal band named Macabre that recorded a song titled Hey Lori Dan. Nick Corwin's mother made a public statement on her son's death, which highlighted a disturbing coincidence. Quote, Hubbard Woods School had returned all of Nicky's classroom projects, including several storybooks he had written and drawn pictures for. Two creations seemed chillingly prescient. The first was a lengthy talking animal story he titled Randolph's Adventure, in which the villain, a dog named Dirty Dan, shoots his victims while at play, killing a character named Mickey. The second was a drawing of his mother standing alone with a balloon caption coming from her mouth reading, Where is my son? And I wanted to mention a little more about Nick. He was born on April 9, 1980 to Joel and Linda Corwin. In school, he was an athlete and known for his sportsmanship and skill. There's actually a very sweet photo of him that I'll post where he's in his baseball uniform. Shortly after his death, playing on the meaning of his name, Giver of Gifts, his friends and schoolmates created a book, The Gifts That Nicholas Gave. He was remembered for his kindness and leadership. They also remembered his exemplary play. One told a reporter that kids would not be able to play fairly because Nick was the one who knew all the rules. On May 24, 1988, mourners gathered at Temple Jeremiah Northfield for the scheduled 10 a.m. funeral service for Nikki. An hour later, the north parking lot was filled, then the south lot filled, and the cars kept coming, lining up along the sides of Hap Road. About 1,500 people tended to pay their respects. Following his death, Winneka passed a handgun ban, which stood until subsequent NRA lawsuits. On March 24, 2018, 30 years after the incident in Washington, D.C., there was a sign held up for Nikki Corwin at the March of Our Lives, which is a student-led demonstration in support of legislation to prevent gun violence in the United States. Also in 2018, Amy Dubla, formerly Amy Moses, who was the teacher in that classroom, said she still spoke to students from back then, saying, quote, I hear the fear in their voice because many of them are now parents and have children the same age that they were when the shooting occurred at Hubbard Woods. They're also thinking that it's so sad we're raising a generation of youth based on fear. Former Winneka police chief Herbert Tim said, quote, What I didn't see change too much was the issues with mental health, which is disappointing. Philip Andrew said, quote, The solutions are there. What do we want to do as a country, as a community, to make sure that every child is free from gun violence? Since Winneka, there have been 153 fatal school shootings that have left 396 dead. So, in my personal view, there are a lot of places to point fingers, but it does cover and perfectly illustrate the fact that after 30 years, not much has changed as, as far as gun violence and the care of mental illness. I don't know what exactly the solutions are, but I, I just simply have to believe that limiting access to firearms is so important. I don't know. It, it sounds like she wasn't background checked. I think also her parents have a lot of responsibility because they've basically throughout her life just threw money at her problems and tried to you know, downplay them and suggest that they weren't as big as they were. I think it's her father, Norman, had a preternatural ability to just be in denial about how dangerous and disturbed his daughter was. And then Edith, I mean, as mentioned in the newspaper articles, she sounded just simply relieved that she was dead. There was one article that I think she was even quoted as having said, if she had done those things, she's better off dead now. So, I mean, the messaging from the parents is just awful. I think Lori Dan was was severely disturbed. I think mental illness played a huge component in this. 
did she have an understanding of right or wrong? I believe so, because when she spoke to her mom in the Andrews house when she was holding Philip hostage, she essentially said, I've done something terrible and I'm going to have to, you know, take my own life. So I definitely believe she knew the difference between right or wrong, but she was obviously compelled by inner demons, you know, but I think it goes back to her family and the way that they dealt with problems and um, condoning her awful behavior. I have a hard time believing that her psychiatrist did not have any sense of impending violence. I mean, I would have thought that, you know, they'd been aware of that she had a firearm. And why why does anyone need that? You know, they say it's protection, but I don't know. The message is that we have a lot of work to do. You know, it's it hasn't been enough. I, what have we accomplished in the last 30 years if this is still going on? We don't need guns. Now for something beautiful relating to the case. In September 1988, the Winneka Park District board members voted to rename Edgewood Park, a popular soccer playfield and playground, Nick Corwin Park in his honor, and there is a plaque that stands there to this day. When it comes to an actual product, though, I, I did want to mention Francois Nars's The Multi-Stick in the shade of Orgasm, which I know is quite a cheeky name, but it's this beautiful, blendable, multi-purpose stick that comes in a peachy pink with golden shimmer, which is truly great for any skin tone, I promise. Um, you can see YouTube videos where they test watches on all, all different shades, and it looks stunning. But you can use it on your eyes, your cheeks, your lips, and your body. So it's very creamy and blendable, and it comes with a sheer shimmer finish. And Orgasm is probably one of the most iconic shades, if not the most iconic shades and best-selling product in the NARS line, and it's great. Typically, mostly use it for my cheeks, but I have used it for my eyes. I don't like the texture as much on lips, but that's just my own personal preference. But it's something that I would use all year around, and like I said, very blendable and easy to put on. I think with powder blush, it you tend to have to kind of sculpt a little bit more. Um, but with this, you can really just, you know, even use your fingers. You can use a brush, but you could easily use the warmth of your fingertips and, you know, blend it in. And it gives you that sort of lovely uh, flushed look, if you will, based on the name. So definitely recommend that for all year around. And I know people aren't wearing a lot of makeup right now due to the quarantine, but I do still think it's nice to pretend that we're healthy and outside and doing things and living life fully. So throw on a little bit of orgasm through the multi-stick onto your cheeks, apples of your cheeks or, you know, cheekbones and your eyes and give yourself a nice little shimmery peachy pink glow. All right, everyone, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode, a more local to me story about the Winneka school shootings and Lori Dan. Very, very sad what happened, but hopefully Nick Corwin's memory won't be in vain because, you know, things like the March of March for Our Lives um, and these young activists out there are honoring him by just being out there and, and talking about these issues. And, you know, I only wish that some of the adults would be more leaders and the government would listen to these poor kids that are just afraid to go to school every day. To follow Crime and Beauty, visit us on Instagram at crimeandbeauty.podcast, on Facebook at Crime and Beauty Podcast, or at crimeandbeauty.podbean.com. 
Please rate and review on whatever platform you're using. And we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, slash Audible, etc. And feel free to shoot me an email. Um, I'd love to hear your feedback, suggestions for next cases, all of that good stuff at crimeandbeautypodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, thanks for listening and stay beautiful. Stay beautiful.